Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast, while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a digital content offering. This is intended for people who know how to read. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, the entertainment capital of the world. My guest today is Peter Matei. His new novel, The Deep Whatsis, The Deep Whatsis. Uh, is now available in paperback from other press here in the United States and over in the UK, uh, or the otherwise known as the UK. I'm, I'm emphasizing the wrong syllable. Uh, over in the UK, it's available from the Friday Project, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. So but before we get started, I wanted to vent a little bit about my own writing. I've been working uh, lately on some screenwriting stuff. Uh, I've been writing television pilots in hopes of uh, maybe selling one of them and making money. And uh, my lean as a writer, my inclination is toward uh, the darkly comical, dark comedy, dramedy, 
downbeat comedy, melancholy laughter, wincing laughter, and so on, which a lot of you know. But uh, what I find, especially in early drafts, is that oftentimes what I write is incredibly depressing. <laughs> I like to the casual reader. So like case in point, uh, I finished a script last week and I handed it off to a trusted friend of mine who was nice enough to read it. And uh, it was like, you know, it was, it was as if I had written Sophie's Choice with a laugh track, essentially, based on my friend's response. I mean, she's, she's a very nice person, very helpful, uh, which is why, I, I, you know, I like to ask her to read stuff. Uh, but it troubles me to think that this might be, a, or this is, it's not even might, it, it is a strong tendency in my writing. And not only with respect to, uh, you know, comedy being too tragic. When I try to do tragedy, uh, people will, on occasion, think it's funny. I'm all backwards. Which uh, reminds me of uh, one of the worst and most humiliating moments of my creative life. And there have been many. Uh, but this one uh, was really uh, excruciating, and it happened to me when I believe I was a junior in college, in film school. And uh, for my final project of the year, I made an absolutely awful movie, <laughs> short film, about a girl who steals her boyfriend's dog and drowns it in a lake. Have I told you guys about this? It was supposed to be a horror film. And it was an attempt by me at uh, narrative filmmaking. Like my first ever real attempt at narrative film. So somehow I found this British actress on campus who had a background in theater and, and sort of like fancied herself a star. A thespian. And she was a very nice girl if a little bit self-serious. And I remember being up at the crack of dawn uh, to shoot this thing in good light on a 16-millimeter film. And I had this actress out near a pristine lake in Colorado. And uh, I remember uh, like she was spinning around like holding a large burlap bag that was supposed to have uh, a dog inside of it. <laughs> And then, of course, she released the burlap bag and uh, into the air, and I, I filmed it flying against a bright blue sky, and then it landed in the lake and uh, sank to the bottom, and I filmed that, uh, too. And uh, what was it called? I can't even remember the name of this thing anymore, but I do remember vividly the screening of, uh, of the film, which happened in front of a good amount of people. Like 200 people. And now now I'm having like this feeling that I've already told this story. I always have this, and I always talk about it, but I, you know, you do enough of these things. So anyway, uh, just to finish, it was the end of the semester, and the entire film department uh, put on a show, essentially. And we all screened our films, each of which, you know, ran about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I want to say I smoked pot before I went in there. 
which is something I would have done back then, and which uh, naturally exacerbated my uh, feelings of insecurity and low-level paranoia. So eventually it was my turn. My film uh, came up on the projector, and I remember sitting there in the dark while the audience howled with laughter at my uh, horror film. It was essentially received as like the funniest film of the night, (laughs) along with uh, like one other film that was actually a comedy explicitly. And, you know, I, I just, I remember walking out of there so depressed. It was a terrible feeling. It is a terrible feeling to make a piece of art uh, or to tell a story with a desired emotional response in mind. And to have that uh, fail. Like, you, you make a horror film hoping to disturb people. You're trying to scare them. And so, like, to have them roaring with laughter is a little bit disconcerting. And, you know, you have to wonder, uh, are they laughing at the film? (laughs) Like meaning, like mocking it, you know, probably, at least partially. Or was it just misunderstood? Did they really think that I intended it as a comedy, in which case they felt that it succeeded? I, I, I honestly don't know. I walked out of there. I'll never forget it. It really affected me. I felt really bad about myself. And so the next year for my senior film, uh, I made an explicit comedy. It was a documentary comedy about going to the zoo and uh, like contemplating a gorilla and falling in love with uh, this gorilla to a certain extent. And then I think it also involved me talking to the camera about how I almost shaved my head. And, you know, this film went over a lot better. The crowd enjoyed it, and uh, it felt uh, coherent, the experience of it. And my teachers, you know, were more receptive. So, anyway, this script that that I've been working on, uh, that I just finished a draft of, it seemed to suffer something of a similar fate. All these years later. Which uh, which naturally uh, begs the question... Do I suck at writing? <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm like, here, uh, take a look at this. Check out my sitcom, and uh, it basically reads like an episode of The Walking Dead <laughs> in terms of the emotional response. It doesn't get any easier. I think Philip Roth said that. Someone said that. Someone very uh, decorated said that once. Something to the effect of every time you sit down to start a new book or a new screenplay, whatever it is, it's always basically the same. You don't get better as you go. Each time you start something new, it's like you're learning it all over again. So, how's that for a happy thought? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Peter Matei. Great to have him here. He's done a lot of different things as a writer, uh, including writing and directing his own film with Robert Redford producing. And uh, he's written for the theater. He went to Yale Drama School. And uh, now he has written uh, a well-received novel. And you're going to hear all about all of this stuff in just a few seconds. So uh, let's get to it. Here he is, folks. This is Peter Matei. And his new novel, once again, is called The Deep What's-This. Uh, I'm in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I work um, for Sony Music as a day job, and I'm in my office, uh, which happens to be like the sort of fanciest office I've ever had in my life. I'm, look, I'm looking actually right now down in Central Park in the Plaza Hotel. It's kind of ridiculous. Oh, my God. That's, yeah, I know. It's like the quintessential New York office. I know. I I. I got this job two years ago and I re- realized that it's like, this is it. I can kind of quit, leave New York now. And <laughs> I've done you know, it. <laughs> I've done it. Exactly. So do you, and you, you say you work for Sony music. What, in what capacity? Um, I'm like a creative director and director. Um, I make little videos for them and things like that. Okay. Well, I just, um, the reason I ask is because, you know, your book, uh, is kind of a send up of corporate culture and there's a lot of satire and, you know, you, you, with it coming out, you have to, you know, you have to be fielding questions about this. Like, has anyone at work been like it recognizing themselves in the book or anything like that? No, I mean, the book's definitely not based on, on this um, particular job. It's sort of based on a bunch of different advertising jobs that I've had over the years and stories that I know from people in the ad world and then just other things that I, I just sort of fantasized about what it's like in the advertising business. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny cause like there's a line, um, uh, like, what is it like technology is taking away the fundamental truths about our humanity and making us pay to get them back. Like I actually scribbled that down. Um, because I feel like, I don't know, it just, it was one of those things that like immediately rang the bell of truth in my head. And then you think about marketing and advertising and all the different messages that we're getting uh, every day. And I don't know, this is something that I feel like author, this is territory that authors uh, and storytellers, uh, you know, are dealing with. I mean, you think of like Mad Men, you think of, uh, what was that? Um, Oh God, Uh, the the downsizing movie, Up in the Air. You know, there there are things that your book uh, you know, is reminiscent of, but like what, after working those ad jobs and talking to people, like what did you arrive at relative to advertising and marketing, uh, in terms of like conclusions? Like, do you really conclusively think like, uh, these, these professions or the tasks that people in these professions are charged with are inherently, um, 
I don't know, is evil too strong a word or, uh, degenerative, you know, bad for human beings. (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what are your thoughts there? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's, well, it depends on how you define evil, but, um, wouldn't say that all these jobs are evil per se, but it, you know, it's like we're part of this kind of postmodern capitalist structure. And so a lot of people like myself, you know, we have, we, we make a living doing things which 50 years ago didn't even exist. Um, I mean, especially working in like digital advertising and stuff like that. I mean, I guess it's just like the, the, the way I see it, it's just this system consumerism is just this system that needs to keep moving faster and faster and become kind of more and more absurd um, in order to, to keep growing and to keep, to keep happening. And so you've got to, you're either in it or you're not in it. And it's really hard to not be a part of it and, and to make a living, I guess right. I would say. Right. It's like impossible to avoid. I mean, there's definitely, I've definitely encountered some evil people in my day, but most of the people that I've worked with um, are, are just, you know, good good creative people who just want to be able to make a living. Right. Right. But I mean, in the process of wanting to make a living, you sometimes like, I don't know, like I feel like there's, and I've talked about this on the show before, but there's like an amnesiac effect to m- making money. You know, like, like it's, it's something that has like a blinding effect on almost everybody who experiences it, I find. And then, um, you know, I think it's very easy to get sucked into a job, particularly when it's like affording you a nice uh, standard of living, you know, <laughs> it becomes easy to rationalize behaviors or things that you previously might have had trouble with, or you know, yeah, and and it can become, uh, I don't know, kind of like what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Like sneaky. Uh, there's a sneaky toxicity to it, right? I, I think that's that's exactly what Breaking Bad is about. You know, it's like it's like a really innocent, naive kind of guy who figures out a way to make money, and he needs to make money fast. And he gets sucked into it and, you know, it completely destroys him. Right. Well, it's like, and I think, I think of like money is the root of all evil. Um, you know, that, that old line. And, uh, I also, I, 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 I think about, uh, the whole story of Christ. And I think I've talked about this before too, but it's like, uh, you know, why did they crucify him? And, I think it's because he was telling people to give their money away. <laughs> like I, you know, I think that really is it. It wasn't like, Oh, he's got, he's got a spiritual following or he's preaching peace or whatever. I think it's as soon as he started thinking, like telling, you know, preaching that rich people should give their money away. They're like, we can't have this. You know, like, right. This guy's dangerous, but, um, have you read uh debt by David Graeber? No. Uh-uh. It's an amazing book. It's basically about the history of money and how money comes about in our society as, something that needs to, it's like a, a, a mathematical paradigm to deal with debt. And it, it talks a lot about religion. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing book. I'll have to read that. Cause like yeah. these, these are issues that are, on, I mean, I think it's, these are issues that are on a lot of people's brains, especially in like over the past several years with the economy being what it's been. And, um, but it's just like, like the system that it, as it's set up seems to overwhelmingly favor, a very small percentage of people, uh, like less than 1%, you know, most of the time. And I was having the argument the other day cause I was reading about, uh, you know, the, the fast food employees striking for like, you know, higher wages cause they're getting paid like, you know, $7 an hour or whatever to, to work there. And, um, 
and it just seems like there's you know there, there's always a justification for why minimum wage cannot be raised, but there's never a justification for why uh, maximum wage uh, maximum wage uh, should have to be reined in. You know, it's like it can always be bigger. You know, these people can always have more, and yet anybody at the very bottom who dares to speak up is is you know just out of their mind, and it just drives me a little crazy. It it drives me crazy too, and I um I I actually kind of speak out whenever I hear people saying this kind of shit because um, like I come from a basically working class Midwestern family and um, you know, that sort of middle class working class thing has been just destroyed um, in this country. And, and so I, it just drives me crazy when I hear people going off about unions or something, you know, I mean, I'm in a union, I'm in the writer's guild, right. but uh, um you know, and I and I also they think that some I mean, somehow people everyone has bought into this idea that that unions and striking minimum wage employees at a, a McDonald's are ruining the economy. And and they're not thinking it's like this bizarre. I was reading an article recently about it. And it's like this strange cognitive dissonance that exists in our society. It's like this huge elephant elephants in the room that no one can talk about. And that's definitely one of them, which is why is it OK for some guy in lower Manhattan to make $50 million a year, basically just trading things around and creating deals. And, and it's, it's, it's some kind of a nightmare when a teacher making $47,000 a year wants more money, like, Oh, that's ruining our education system. (laughs) Right, right. Right. And it's the same thing about like people saying, well, we've got to cut government spending. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, we spent half a million dollars last year saving some sea turtles or whatever, but those people will never say, but half a million dollars in military budget, that's like a, you know, that's nothing. That's one missile um, or less. Uh, and it's just a bizarre cognitive dissonance. What, why aren't, you know, why, aren't, why isn't the conversation widened? Well, yeah. And, like, and I think like what drives it all, well, I guess not all of it, because when you get into like the politics of it and like military spending and stuff like that, well, but you know what? It, it probably does fall under this umbrella. But the word that comes to mind for me is greed. And, and then, then also it goes back to what I was talking about with regard to like the amnesia or the blindness, you know, it's like a blind greed. And, and, and I, what, what I don't want to get too holier than thou about it because I'm a human being too. Uh, I don't happen to be like super wealthy, so, um, I don't have the problem, (laughs) but I know people who are, and I sometimes wonder, or you look at it and you're like, wow, are you. Like I've seen it, I've seen it happen. Like I've seen friends of mine, like go from being, uh, not wealthy to being wealthy. And you do sometimes see some changes or there's different ways of, I don't know, belief systems or things they pay attention to. And you wonder like if they're losing touch. And then I wonder too, like, God, if I ever start to make a lot of money, like what's going to happen to me? <laughs> um, and, and I guess like, I don't know, are just human beings irretrievably greedy and all that you need is like a system in place to give you an opportunity to, to grab a bunch of money and suddenly like you have the disease and do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you guard against it? I, you know, I don't think that that's true at all. I think, I think that, um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the eighties and what it seemed like to me was that this, this new notion that we're kind of Reagan brought in, which is that, you know, making money is the, is the greatest thing that a human being could aspire to do. I think that that that's always been there, but it was a little bit new. 
and that that there should be no embarrassment, there should be no shame, and there should be no giving back. There should be like just pure creed was great, and I think that's relatively new, and I think we've all sort of accepted it. And somebody I was reading recently, it might have been that writer Tony Ute. Do you say his name? Do you know what I mean? No, I don't. Uh-uh. He, he wrote this. He's like a he's he died, but he's like an anthropologist and writes history and taught history at NYU. And he wrote a book called Ill Fares the Land. And and basically he was saying that, you know, the idea of pure unadulterated greed running every all all human interactions is like pretty new on the face of the planet. I mean it's always been there, but there's always been some sort of checks and balances, like for example, religion and things like that 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 mitigated that and that those things are kind of largely gone away and that's that's sort of the world that that we live in well i was gonna I mean, say with respect to religion uh it just seems so uh sad <laughs> to think of like religious leaders you know finding ways because there's such an allegiance sometimes between political interests and and you know religious institutions we've seen that plenty of that and like they can find ways to like twist the scripture so that it's like Jesus wants you to be greedy and make as much money as you can. <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. I know. It's just, ugh. I can't, I Whereas can't. the whole, like when I grew up, the whole idea of religion and Christianity was all about um, helping the poor. Like I grew up Catholic and it was like, there was so many things about helping the poor, you know? And it's sort of now, it's kind of the opposite. It's like blame the poor. Right. Like they did something. Like what's wrong with them? You know, like what's, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, you think that's just kind of like a, like a, a shift that was brought on by uh, politics or do you think that there's something else that's driving that? Oh, uh, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's sort of political, but what might be behind it? I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe, maybe technology, maybe. I mean, the internet certainly has sped everything up a lot. Yeah, I was like reading an art. I was reading something online the other day about, uh, you know, how the internet's basically ruined. <laughs> you know, for as much like praise as the internet gets, and as as much as it's simplified so many different aspects of our lives, like it's ruined a lot of businesses, and it's ruined the ability for a lot of people to make a living. Um, you know, and I think in the media, like a lot of people feel that way, or at least it's like created a giant moment of confusion and and uh, you know a significant downturn for a lot of folks, where it's like. How do you possibly, you know, get a foothold in this world? And, you know, I think publishing is certainly not immune to that. No, and I think it's amazing that publishing is sort of held out in its basic model as long as it has. Um, and I and I applaud that model. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm very ambivalent about technology. I get really into it um, in an anthropological way and the... Uh, and, and also it's helped me make a living. But um, in the 90s, I worked in the dot-com uh, field in, in New York in the late 90s. And I was sort of part of the whole uh, dot-com boom, and it was really weird and fun and crazy. Did and you, it just felt like did you make yeah. a, did you make a bunch of money or anything? Like did you have like one of those like you know stock options at a startup kind of experiences? Or I had a couple of those, and uh, they they didn't end up making me any money. I mean, it all crashed in like 2000. So I think I ended up making a couple thousand dollars in stock. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> not, 
Well, no, I had like an, I had, a, I did a magazine assignment years ago where I talked to a couple of different guys. It was all about like young, uh, it was about the article was about young men who had kind of ridden that wave. And uh, I talked to one guy who had, you know, was making like good money, like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, and was, you know, had a nice apartment in San Francisco and a Jeep Cherokee. And, you know, he had like that life, uh, but wasn't making like stupid money. And then I talked to another guy who had like, uh, I want to say like a, a paper worth of like a hundred million dollars, you know, when he had all these stock options in this company and they shot up and he literally had like a, a just a, a King's ransom and both of them lost it all. Yeah, uh, you know when the when the crash happened, and what was interesting was that the guy with the Jeep Cherokee in the apartment in San Francisco was more messed up. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it was like you know the other guy was just more well adjusted, uh, at least when I spoke to him. But uh, I found that fascinating. You know, people who had that ride. I was not. I did not partake. But you know, I know people who walked out there like straight out of college, and you know, the first job they took at, at uh, Yahoo or whatever wound up making them millionaires. It's crazy. Yeah, I knew, I knew of some people like that, too, or people that worked at Microsoft, and they just kind of held on to their stock and then retired at age 37. And what are they doing yeah. now? Are they, I mean, are they... Are they I don't really, know. That would be a good article. <laughs> right. Are they really happy? Like, you got to wonder. I think they should be giving it to uh, writers that are... Yeah, like, just create, like, a writer retreat, like, I, you know, some, some sort of, like, cabin in the woods <laughs> or, you know, some sh a chalet. Uh, so let's, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that you're a, uh, you were raised in the Midwest and raised Catholic. Like, so whereabouts are you from? Uh, St. Louis. I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis. Okay. And, uh, like pretty, like traditional, like uh, folksy kind of apple pie upbringing. No. Um, I think that on the surface it might've looked a little bit like that. I mean, I grew up in a really squeaky clean, nice, um, suburb, you know, basic ranch house kind of thing, but my family was like real immigrant kind of uh, uh, culture and kind of just crazy and um, all over the place. So what's your, it what, was is, like, what, what, is your what are your roots like ethnically? Like you say immigrant. Uh, my father, uh, his family came from Italy and my mom's family came from Czechoslovakia. Yeah, we have a, and, lot, in, we have a uh, lot in common. Uh, my dad, oh, really? my dad's Italian. I mean, Listy is Italian, and my, I guess my great grandfather came over. But then, uh, you know, and I was raised in the Midwest, Catholic. So there are, where there are parallels, uh, Milwaukee and Indianapolis. Oh wow! Yeah, but uh, when, it's okay. So when you say crazy, like, uh, what do you mean? Like just like volatile? Like do you come from creative people? Where there, was there like a uh, artist temperament or something like running through the household, or was it a different kind of crazy? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I don't know how much I want to can talk about this, but uh, my my mom was pretty pretty certifiably out there, and um, and I think I definitely get my artistic temperament from her. Um, she collected weird things and uh, just re and read a lot. What did she collect? Um, like romance novels. Oh, okay. And she collected. Um, uh, postcards and she later in her life she wrote letters com complaint letters to like every single company that she dealt with and and, <laughs> and saved all of those which I, which I, I have a bunch of them um, for some future website <laughs> and my father was an engineer um, and very kind of by the books 
and the way he saw the world and everything. And I think that I'm a good sort of tortured uh, uh, combination of those two things. And did you have siblings? Um, yeah, my sister uh, lives in Texas and, and works as a business person. Okay. Well, no, but it's like, you know, I, I, I guess this isn't always the case, but I've heard it said that, like, creative people often uh, come from parents who have, uh, you know, not necessarily polar opposite personalities, but when there's kind of, like, two very distinct uh, temperaments, you know, cause sometimes people marry and they have kind of a similar mood and outlook or whatever. And then sometimes you have these couples where like one person, like your dad, for instance, is like sort of a, a straighter arrow and by the books. And then the other one's a lot more, um, emotional or volatile or eccentric or whatever the case may be. Like, do you think that, um, that's the case with you? Like that your creative impulse comes from the tension between those two things and, however it happened to manifest within you is what made you want to be creative and write. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, but I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think my creative impulse just, uh, it just started early. It was just something that I needed to do. Um, I mean, I think I'm just fairly tortured person and it helps to create, uh, imaginary worlds to kind of get that stuff out. Um, I think that I've always thought that, I inherited sort of like a crazy creative streak from my mom and the practical side from my dad, which is kind of why I got into filmmaking. Um, because it's like, you can, you can write a script and go into that kind of writing thing and then you can be on set and shoot something. And it's like being on a construction site, which is what my dad did. Um, but it's interesting to think about the, just the tension. I mean, I think for a long time I was trying to decide whether I was my mom or my dad like which side I was going to go to. And I kind of went both sides. I was going to be an architect for a while. And then I was writing and painting. I lived in Chicago in the late eighties and I was writing and painting and doing all sorts of art stuff. And I, and then I, I got into theater because it was sort of a combination of, of all those different things. But I, I was trying to figure out like which side I was going to go to. And then I realized I, I kind of was just going to be both. Um, so that, that's why it sort of suits me to have a job and also be a writer. Like I, I've got, I've got more, I've been working full time now for about eight years and uh, I've gotten more work done while having a job than I did before when I was just sort of lounging about. That's interesting. You know, it reminds me of college, like the semesters where I took like 18 hours of, you know, 18 credit hours of classes. I always did better than when I like the semesters where I had like, you know, two classes and do you know what I'm saying? Like the more free time you have, the more time you tend to fuck around. Totally. So when you say that you're, uh, tortured, like, what do you mean by that? Like, do you mean like, have you, have you been, uh, like depressive? You know what I'm saying? Do you struggle with depression creatively or uh, otherwise, or do you just mean that like, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. You know, what do you mean specifically by that? Because I feel like I'm tortured, uh, in some ways, or at least I have like recurring themes that I battle with in my head that like, it's like this big ball of yarn that I'm not sure if I'm ever going to pot, you know, fully untangle, you know, <laughs> like, um, and, and I guess like I, I sort of like, uh, I, I try to comfort myself by, uh, understanding that at least I'm aware of it. You know what I'm saying? At least I'm aware of the ball of yarn, <laughs> uh, right? you know, but like for you, how does it manifest? Uh, yeah, I'm, I can be pretty depressive and, uh, I think, on the surface, 
I can be kind of really negative and, uh, and sort of skeptical of things. Um, a girl at a party the other night said that she, she thought, you, you seem very skeptical. And I hadn't really said anything. <laughs> it must have been something she just could see in my face. But, uh, yeah, I've struggled, with, I've struggled with a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, I think that writing definitely has just been kind of an outlet for me. Okay, so let me ask you a question because okay. once again I'm drawing parallels. But w when you say like negative, skeptical, um, I guess skeptical and mistrustful are sort of synonymous. But d does any of it come from? Uh, do you think being raised Catholic? Uh, because and and I'm I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing that you're not necessarily like practicing Catholic or like super doctrinaire Catholic at this point. No. So for me, uh, I think part of my skepticism and possibly negativity uh, comes from having realized that that wasn't for me and that there was a lot of bullshit in it, uh, you know, especially at a young age, especially in adolescence. And like, I think I'm still recovering from that. I think that'll be like a lifelong thing, because I think when I was a kid, I believed <laughs> what I was told. And then as soon as that started to come apart for me, that sort of messed with my head. Yeah, I never really believed it, and I was never, I was never really asked to believe it. I got off. I was pretty lucky. I think that Catholicism is is a class ideology as much as it is anything else, and and I think I was raised within that. Which, when I look back on a certain, I don't know, just ways in which people in my family did just receive things and and just believe them, um, and I think that was very Catholic. Um, and I think a certain kind of just working class mentality of, you know, just do what you're told and don't uh, rock the boat and don't question the system and don't be weird. I think I, I grew up with that. But I was pretty lucky because my mom became really disenchanted with the church uh, when I was young for reasons I never quite understood. And my dad thought of it as an obligation that he had to do in order to, like, make his parents happy or something. So we would always, we would generally go to church, but I would go, always be there like 10 or 15 minutes late and we would leave 10 minutes early because my dad didn't want to deal with parking. <laughs> <laughs> so he would like park his car like right in front of the door to the church where just, you weren't allowed to park. I'm just picturing him just like leaving it running, you know, like, that would be the idea. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that was the base. That was the basic idea. So I, I never took it seriously as a, as, as religion. Um, it, and then when I got to be a teenager, I think at that point, I, I just stopped going and it was never questioned. Um, and I never really went back. Okay. So maybe it doesn't torture you as much as it did me. Like, I guess like, uh, my parents were more into it and still are, they still go to church every Sunday. Um, and it wasn't like they hammered me over the head with it, but, uh, I was reading an interview with Mary Carr. Uh, you know who she is, the, sure. you know, the writer and, and she, uh, has come back to, you know, uh, religion in her sobriety or whatever, but she was just talking about it as like a, a set of practices, like things that she does like rituals, you know, and she understands it best at the level of ritual than she does at the, at the level of belief. And like that I can get down with, like, I understand like wanting to have certain rituals to like provide some sort of order in your life or structure. Um, but you know, when it gets into the whole realm of like belief and, uh, you know, that's where I, it loses me. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand why people want to believe things that are patently false. I think there's a real comfort in that. 
and of belonging to, I mean, I would love to be the kind of person that could just believe something and belong to a cult or whatever and just let go. Um, it would be nice. I, mean, I can't. <laughs> it would be great. But, uh, but I'm totally, I think the idea of church is a great idea. Um, the idea that you take one day out of seven and you devote it to like humility and contemplation and, you know, compassion for others and, and all these kinds of things, um, I think is, is absolutely fantastic. I, I haven't found that in my life. Like I haven't found that place, um, where that exists. And I, I kind of am just, I just don't really like organized religion or at least what it seems to stand for in this country right now. So that's been tough for me, but I am actually, I've looked into different types of churches. Like, uh, I spend a lot of time in, in Texas where my sister is and I've gone to some mega churches there and I've discovered that, uh, it actually is the opposite of what I thought it was going to be. Um, and that it was really very much about a certain kind of practice and very much about creating these weird little socialist communities um, that of course would never call themselves that. Uh, so anyway, I just, I don't, I didn't want to sound like I was anti-religious because I think that there's, I agree with Mary Carr. There's, there's really good stuff to, to be done, like especially around, I think, caring for other people. and Right. Well, that yeah. it, it's about it's about doing as opposed to believing. Like that's yeah, exactly that's the big thing for me. And I think I would love to see, uh, you know. And I agree with you too. Like I think like having one day out of seven that's a really nice way to put it. To just have some humility and to contemplate and to rest and to just like enjoy being alive. Like that's something that people could stand to do more of. You know, especially totally. especially in the way in, you know with the way that we live now and the speed with with which we live and like the constant connectivity you know it just gets overwhelming and i think people can lose themselves in that but um i think when uh at the level of belief and being right and the other person being wrong is, is where things get sticky so yeah so uh like let's go back a little bit into your biography like you, you mentioned that you were in chicago in the late 80s uh was this prefaced by college did you go to college and get a degree in some sort of like writing related or film related uh area of interest or how did you no i um i went to brown and uh i studied economics um i kind of i wanted to study creative writing or i wanted to write poetry or something i wasn't really sure and uh, that was kind of frowned upon by my family. But you, and, you went to Brown. That's a pretty. That's a pretty great leap for a, a working class kid from St. Louis. Like it's a, yeah, it was. It was way too big a leap. <laughs> how so? But, uh, how so? Uh, I was just really intimidated there, and um, and didn't do very well there, and didn't really know who the hell I was. Um, I just didn't feel safe there. I just felt like it was so. I mean, I had really never been out of Missouri in my life. Um, when I went there and, uh, and I was in a fraternity and I was on a, a team and, uh, what team, like, what do you mean? The water polo team. Oh, okay. <laughs> you must've been in good shape. That's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I was in good shape. Yeah. Um, and so when I got out, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I went on an interview to work at someplace like IBM or something. And I, hated it. And I just realized that I, I couldn't do that. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had this vague notion that I wanted to be a writer. 
um, but no idea of how to do that or anything. And I moved to Chicago. Um, and why Chicago? I had been to Chicago. New York was way too big for me. And I had been to Chicago several times with my family and I had cousins there and my cousins offered me a, a bedroom in their house. And, uh, so I took them up on it and I, uh, asked somebody like, well, if I want to be a writer, what, what should I do? And they said, you should get into advertising. Um, and I think it was like F Scott Fitzgerald or someone worked in advertising. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> I was told, I was told something similar. And, and also, like, oh, really? well, yeah. And like, you know, just coming out of college, there are like these horrible, like technical writing jobs where you're like writing like instruction manuals for like exercise equipment or something. Well, that's what I did. Yeah. Well, but, yeah. I worked for, uh, Montgomery ward and I, and I worked on their uh, catalog. I was a catalog writer. Um, and writing things like, you know, original 100% wood look finish. <laughs> it was awesome. It was is, that, is that a haiku? I don't even know. Yeah. I, um, I actually, I actually did go, take some of my writing from that catalog and I went to an open mic poetry reading and I just read some of it <laughs> in a poet voice. How did it go over? I don't think it went over that well. <laughs> I think they thought I was making fun of them. <laughs> I think it's funny. Um, so, okay. So you were doing that living in Chicago. So you had, I mean, it sounds very, like very familiar to me, like that floundering just out of college, like nursing the notion that you want to be a writer, but not knowing quite how to do that or where to go, you know, to get paid to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, which I, you know, uh, it's still sort of a problem for me, but, uh, what, like, what did you do like next? Like, how did you eventually fall into something that, you know, got you out of the Montgomery ward business? I pursued the advertising thing and I got a job at a kind of groovy ad agency in Chicago. And, uh, I was actually doing really well. I had like a, a hot little ad career for about three years. Um, but meanwhile I was doing other kinds of things and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I just quit that job and lived in Europe for a summer and came back and I decided that I, I had seen, um, Steppenwolf theater and I had seen some of their like Sam Shepard plays and stuff, and I just that's was the one that, blown away that's by the that. One that John Malkovich started, right? Yes, he was part of it, and Gary Sinise, and right, 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 all those people, yeah. And that had really affected me and blown me away. And so I sat down one day to try to write a play, and I just could not stop typing. Um, and I just worked on this play like all night, all through the night, and at the end of it, I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. And I finished that play and I kind of, you know, re rewrote it a couple of times and then I sent it off and I got into Yale drama school. So I went off to study playwriting at Yale. Jesus. What was the play? You wrote this play in a night? Well, I mean, I rewrote it over the next couple of months, but yeah, the first draft was written in like 12 straight hours. Gee, and like not under the influence of anything, just like pure inspiration. Pure, like... I had never experienced anything like that before. And what was the play about? Do you have any, like, just... You know. It was about uh, my high, like, high school years and my high school buddies and smoking pot in my friend's basement, basically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a winner. <laughs> so then off to Yale Drama School. Yes. And uh, I was there for three years, and then I came to New York um, and had met some people that... Uh, a little theater company in Tribeca that was called Cucaracha Theater. 
And they, like right within a week of me getting to New York, they did one of my plays. And that sort of got me going in the theater thing. So, and, and do you feel like your time at Yale Drama School was like super useful? Like, was it a good experience? Well, it was a great experience. And um, it was basically my undergraduate, uh, like I did my undergraduate degree in graduate school. Because, uh, like I said, I was sort of intimidated at Brown. I didn't know what the hell I was doing there. And when I got to Yale, I was older. I was in my mid-20s, and I, um, and I was more confident. And so I took a lot of classes and different things and just studied a lot of different stuff. It's like you got, um, to, it's like you got to have a do-over. Exactly. I got a do-over. And did you, were you uh, mixing? Because I know like a lot of notables, like didn't Meryl Streep go to Yale Drama School? And, you know, it, it has a pretty good track record for turning out working actors and working writers like were you in school with anybody there that has you know gone on to have like uh, amazing success or anybody that you thought was like just like out of this world talented there were tons of really talented people i mean from my class there was nobody that got super famous um there were a bunch of well-known actors that i could name who were really really hugely talented but uh but it was weird like nobody got tremendously famous i mean one of my friends won a pulitzer prize last year well there you go um, yeah who's that uh, Lynn Nottage, she, uh, for a play called Ruined okay. in 2009. Well, that's big. She's an incredible writer. Yeah. I mean, Pulitzer surprise to me. Like, that's that seems to be upper echelon of, uh, yeah, no kidding. if not famous. but you know. Yeah, no kidding. I actually used, I knew August Wilson uh, when I was at Yale. Because was, that was when he was doing all of his uh, big plays. It's like the late 80s. And uh, I ran into him one time in New York at a cash machine and he had just won the Pulitzer prize for, I can't remember what play. And, um, he said, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, I'm, I'm freelancing at an advertising agency. And he said, Oh, you know, that's interesting. I've always wanted to do that. I've always thought that that would be something that I would enjoy doing. And I said, well, that's funny, August, because I've always wanted to win, win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I thought for a minute I'll you, trade you. I thought for a minute you were going to tell me that like his card was declined and you had to like give him some money or something. No. It's be. Um, so, and when you talk about like working in the theater world in New York, you know, coming out of Yale Drama School, like yeah, you know, it's pretty. It seems like it's a pretty good uh, transition to leave school, arrive in New York, and then have one of your plays go into production relatively soon thereafter. But you know, you also had to freelance at advertising to keep a roof over your head. It wasn't like there was much money in theater. Like, you couldn't really make a living with it, or could you? Oh, my God, no. Yeah. Um, it was really... I mean, I, I freelanced for about eight months and then did another play. Um, and at that point, I just kind of couldn't really keep working in that world and keep doing the theater. And the theater thing was kind of taking off, and my plays were getting done all over the country. And, uh, and I was, I was doing productions in LA and San Francisco simultaneously and stuff like that. I mean, nothing huge, you know, small stuff, but, but it was good. And, uh, I thought I just got to a point where I had to quit. I was like making $5,000 a year and <laughs> driving myself crazy. And I apologize to anyone who may be listening to this that I knew during those, those years. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so from then you decided to take, a, like, you know, at least find a, a more stable uh, day job path in order. Is that where you made the transition? Or, Well, that's when I kind of, uh, I started working in the dot-com world in the mid-90s as okay. a writer, just kind of writing stuff. And I worked for Rupert Murdoch's first internet venture, 
Which was? It was called um, iGuide, I think it was called. It ended up kind of imploding and turning into seven different things. It was it was crazy, kind of wild times. And then I ended up working at a really cool little internet company called uh, Razorfish. That's now a big company. Sure, yeah. Um, it's huge. Yeah, and we were just basically trying to figure out what the internet was and invent stuff for the internet. So I was like doing, um, you know, kind of like a TV show on the internet before you could even do video um, and a bunch of other sorts of like art, pro strange art projects that we did. We created our own little weird kind of network. So, so that was really like a great way of making a living. Um, and I ended up, and then I kind of, I ended up uh, writing a, I, I had wanted to make a film for a long time and I ended up writing a screenplay that was based on uh, an old uh, German play. And I got incredibly lucky and got it to one friend who got it to the right people. And then I ended up in the Sundance filmmakers lab. Okay. So what, what, okay. So you, you have to get into the Sundance filmmakers lab, first of all. Yeah. It's a selection. And then once you're in, what does that mean? You, uh, you go to the Sundance ski resort, uh, in Utah and you kind of workshop your screenplay for like a month and they bring in all these heavy hitting mentors, uh, from LA mostly that kind of help you. They read your script, they give you notes and you shoot a bunch of scenes from your film, uh, on video and you edit them with like really good editors and stuff so that you can start to kind of get a sense of the filmmaking process. Most of the people are first time directors. Um, and so it was great. I mean, I it was, it was one of the best ex experiences of my life. Really. That sounds fun. It was really fun. So who are your mentors? Like, did you were like, you sitting there with like, I don't know, major, uh, famous actors or anything, or who, who was it? Um, trying to think, uh, I mean, Robert Redford most prominently, uh, was there that year and took a liking to my project um, and and ended up producing my film or executive producing my film um, when it got shot so you know it was it was a it was a really heady experience because I had never made a film before i didn 't go to film school most of the other people there had been to film school and kind of knew what they were doing and I was pretty clueless um, but it was really fun uh, i remember I remember one time we were shooting a scene on uh, Bob, Bob Redford. I was going to say, do you call him Bob? Because I feel like once, you, once you're working with him, it's oh, not Robert, it's Bob. It's Bob, yeah. yeah. Um, very good guy. I mean, very down-to-earth guy, too. Like, you know, really easy to, to hang with. But um, he gave me some, some notes or something on how the scene was going. It gave me some uh, suggestion as to what to say to the actors. And... I'm just standing there looking at him, just going, this is Robert Redford talking to me. What the fuck is going on? Right. So I walk, I said, that's a great idea. Thank you. And I just like walked up to the actors um, on the set. And I just said, I have no idea what he just said. to me. I just couldn't even concentrate on it. So I'm just saying this to you. So it sounds like I'm giving you the direction that he just gave me to give you, but I can't remember what it was. And they laughed and we all laughed. And then we went back and, you know, started shooting the scene again. So, okay. So, I mean, it's funny to hear you say that because there is like that, especially with somebody that's like, you know, been in so many films and is kind of this iconic figure, not, not even kind of, you know, he's a major American screen actor or whatever. 
and so director. You, yeah, and director. So you have this like fixed image of these people in your head, and then suddenly you're in a room with them and working with them. Like, at what point did you shake that stuff? Because it, it is there. You know, like, I think it's silly to pretend that it's not. And then, you know, I know that uh, it sounds like he's the kind of guy that's kind of disarming and can put people at ease. And I think when you're someone like that, you have to kind of become a good at that but was there ever a point at which you're like yeah that's bob <laughs> or was it always in the back of your mind like holy shit what am i doing here with robert redford it was always a little bit more of the latter there were i mean he's a really easygoing guy so he puts people at ease very very easily and he's obviously incredibly charismatic but it's like any kind of an icon like that it's just impossible for it not to be a part of your i mean it's like a glowing vision of of celebrity, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of incredible. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would like to be like to be a person like that. I mean, I've been in several situations where like he walks into a room and it's just, there's a weird instinctual thing that happens to the tribe of that room. And I'm talking about, it could be a room of 300 people and everyone knows and everyone sort of turns and the entire vibe of the room conversation stops and everything changes. Yeah. The temperature changes. The temperature completely changes. I mean, you live in LA, so you probably see a lot of this stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, no, it's like, uh, I always characterize it as like, a, like the fame is a third party entity, you know, like it's like his fame, people's perception of who they think he is, is like a thing <laughs> yeah. and it follows him around. It's not really him. But you go in there and, yeah, everyone just, like, reacts to that, like, you know, specter or whatever it is. And uh, what's funny, too, is is that, you know, it, it forces or it causes people who happen to be sitting in that room to act. So you have this actor who's famous, and when he walks into a room, uh, people begin to act. And they, they're, right. they're, they're either acting like they're unaffected or they're acting like they don't see him or they're acting like their temperature hasn't changed or, you know, it, it causes everyone to start performing in a weird way. I've always found that like to be a, a kind of a funny irony. I never, I never thought about that, but it's so true. Like, have you ever been to dinner someplace and there's a, a star sitting a couple of tables away? Sure. Yeah. And people start to say, well, you know, that one script that I have, um, I'm pretty sure that Miramax is interested. Like they start talking about their projects really loudly. <laughs> it's like that's yeah, that's that's obscene almost, or just like ridiculous, or or like people I find like sometimes become like uh, they kind of like like fake nonchalant, like they get. Uh, like like relaxed or like mouthy in like a really. Uh, pronounced way you know what i'm saying it's like yeah. it's like they're like trying to demonstrate that they don't give a shit <laughs> uh it's just i don't know it's it, and for me it's like i really don't know I, just, I think i just get quiet i don't know how to behave it, it, it you know because like not only am i reacting to the person but i'm reacting to all the other people's reaction to the person and i think it's all the other people's reaction to the person and me trying to parse that that's most uncomfortable for me um if there's an sense. interesting scene here and something i don't know it's like the scene in being John Malkovich where everyone's Malkovich. Um, what was I going to, do you, do you write uh, Hollywood stuff or just fiction? Well, I mean, I'm working, I mean, I've been trying to get into TV, but it's like, it seems like a well-guarded fortress. It's like very difficult. So working on some scripts, but so is everybody else in LA. <laughs> right. Every, uh, and everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. But you know, I, I feel like right now, in both in filmmaking, but also in TV, it's like an interesting moment. It feels kind of like, a, you know, we're somewhere in the middle of the pivot moment for uh, 
um, film and television uh, in much the same way that publishing has been through or, or is going, you know, maybe is further along in its pivot and music is even further along in its pivot into the digital you know, realm where things are kind of uh, fragmenting and the bar is getting lower and lower in terms of uh, how easy it is to, to make art and distribute it, you know? So with that in right. mind, it just, I don't know. It seems like, an, like there's opportunity there to make stuff, but then the question is like, how do you uh, make money from the stuff, <laughs> uh, you know, and then get it widely seen? There's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot of TV shows on the internet, you know, and there are, yeah, There's I mean, millions of them already. Yeah. So it's just, it's just like the environment gets noisier and noisier. And then it's like, how do you kind of like distinguish yourself amid all that noise? And, you know, it's the same challenge in writing. It's the same challenge in music. And I think about this all the time. Um, the ways in which technology has kind of changed everything. Um, cause you know, like Francis Ford Coppola said in, I guess it was like in the early nineties or something. He said, eventually a 12 year old, because he's talking about, video, digital video. He said, eventually a 12-year-old in Ohio will be able to make a feature. And at the time, that was such a radical thing to think about, right? It was like, wow, that, that would be great. Yeah. You know, the, the means of production in the hands of the, uh, the proletariat or whatever. And we're, we're kind of at that place right now because you can make a really nice looking feature on like a digital SLR camera for very little money. Yeah. But what happens when literally that tens of thousands of people are doing that? And most of it, of course, the quality is really, really low. So what does that do to things that are of higher quality? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to these questions, but it is true that like really sort of bad horror films are kind of ruling the box office right now. Yeah. Low budget. Um, yeah. And indie films are kind of nowhere. Right. Well, I had a conversation with my wife uh, not too long ago where I was like thinking things over and I was like, oh my God, like when our daughter is a teenager, it's, it's likely that like what she will watch on her screen, whether it's like a flat screen TV mounted to the wall or a computer screen or whatever it is that's around 15 years from now. But uh, what she'll be watching will likely be programs created by her friends, like that's kind of what I can see happening. Like, cause even if it's a really shitty feature made by a 15 year old, if it's your friend and like your other friends are in it or you're in it, you know, like, yeah, I mean, maybe that's what's going to happen. And so you're going to have these like tiny little hives of people who are making, you know, art for each other. And, and that's what they watch or they're shooting like selfie videos or whatever it is. But then I guess in terms of how things distinguish themselves, like maybe some of these things wind up being good or capturing something, uh, and then they wind up getting shared, you know, and it becomes viral in the way that things become viral on the web. But, you know, it does get confusing. Like I get overwhelmed thinking about it, you know, I, yeah, I get much, you know. The same, much the same way I get overwhelmed thinking about books and, and, you know, internet publishing and like how, I mean, it just seems like impossible sometimes, uh, or at least it seems like you really have to recalibrate your expectations. <laughs> Um, and back in the day, like I was watching, uh, the, you know, the, the Carson, Johnny Carson documentary that American masters did. I don't know if you saw that, No. but it was, you know, it's a fun documentary to watch if you have like any interest in like the history of television or comedy or whatever. But, uh, the point that I want to make is that like, you know, the market share that he had back in the old days of television was extraordinary. Like I, I want to say when tiny Tim got married on the tonight show, they had like 50 million people watching, you know, right. and that's unthinkable today. It's unless it's like the Super Bowl or something. 
Yeah, what does that mean? I mean, I think about this all the time in terms of the lack of curation and the whole idea of crowdsourcing. Um, and I think more and more decisions are being made based on YouTube hits. You know, like filmmakers and comedians certainly are are getting careers, and musicians for sure, yeah. uh, are getting careers based on, like, look, they've got 15 million views. Um, and I just am not sure that YouTube views is really finding quality. <laughs> yeah. is a method for, for determining quality. Um, we used to argue this back in the dot-com uh, days all the time about, like, the hive. You know, the hive will make decisions, like the way bees are. And I was always like, yeah, but I, I like bees, but I'd rather have Beethoven. Like one person working alone, you know, is kind of, to me, is better than anything that a hive can create. I mean, I could be totally wrong, and it brands me as an idiot or something, but no, I, don't know. I, mean, I think I about this it. stuff all the time. Me too. And I, it's like, you know, I just think that people who are, in, who are charged with the responsibility of finding things, you know, whether you're in development in film or you're an A&R guy in music or whatever, and you've got to, you know, go to the people uh, above you and say like, let's take a chance on this and spend money on this. I think it's just easier to present like, you know, somebody's video or, or film or whatever and be like, look, 15 million people can't be wrong. You know? Right. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like insurance, you know? Yeah. I heard a story about a screenwriter who, um, a, a, a really well uh, established screenwriter who had a great sci-fi script that he couldn't sell. And, so he finally just went into a comic book store and he explained the idea to one of the people working there. And do you have anything similar to this? And they said, yeah, oh, there's this graphic novel. It's a little bit like that. It's got a guy from the future, or whatever. And he went and he just bought the graphic novel, contacted the creators of it, bought the rights to it, and then repitched the project as an adaptation of this graphic novel and sold it. Hmm. Well, that's, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, like yeah. having some sort, property. Of, some sort of existing property. Yes. But, and, and if there's like an existing sales track record, like I assume the graphic novel had sold. Okay. No, I don't think so. I think it, or he wouldn't have been able to afford it. I think that it was more like just that it was a thing, it, a thing that connected to a Comic-Con audience that they thought would work. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's tricky. And it's like, uh, there's no formula, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I guess there is some kind of formula, but it's like, I don't know. It seems very slippery to me. So are, did you write like a TV spec to try to get into the... Yeah, like TV spec and then, you know, spec of existing show. I've written a feature film comedy. Everyone's always like very funny, quirky, you know, like we don't know, yeah. how, to, we don't know how to deal with this. Like it's like right. that's the notes that I always get. So I think like I have, you know, when it comes to com the commerciality of my writing, and I think this was the same case with uh, regard to... Uh, books you know it's always fallen in some sort of weird niche and i think it has like an audience but i'm not necessarily sure how big you know and, and i think it also just comes down to like who buys it and how they market it and what the timing is and i've had this conversation with writers over and over again on this show about uh like how, how does it happen like how does a book take off why does a movie become this you know huge cultural sensation and you know, you can pick it apart every which way, but at the end of the day, I think there's just like a great amount of mystery to it and uh, timing, luck, the cultural moment. Uh, obviously, the quality of the work has to be there, but I think the quality of the work is uh, obviously subjective. And I think that with stuff that 
gets published uh, or gets made, like a lot of times the qualities, it's there, but it just doesn't find its audience, you know, and nobody quite knows why, you know. Right. Well, I think the world is so kind of chaotic now. Um, before, I mean, maybe I'm just kind of being romantic about the past or something, but there'd be a, there was a set number of of curators, you know, critics, editors, and so on, who if they all kind of agreed on something, then that was it. It it got pushed out there, and and people would know it and and buy it. Right. Um, and if because if you look at some of the biggest selling writers of like 50 or 60 years ago, it's like stuff we consider to be great today, but wouldn't sell. No way. And, and I think that now we're in a world in which that curatorial model is kind of gone. That's considered like the old boys network or whatever. And it's much more of a free market model. And then you add the internet into it and it just becomes, it's like an uncontrollable sort of algorithm or something, you know, and who knows what, what it's going to pick. Yeah, and exactly. And I think like there are so many people who are sitting there looking at all that chaos and trying desperately, you know, desperately to figure out the, the mathematical formula. And if they ever do, they're going to be fabulously wealthy, but I don't think it's possible. You know, I think it's just too big. And There's a book in that. Yeah. You know, something, uh, maybe some guy who finally like cracks the code. Exactly. <laughs> So what about, okay, so what about books? Because you've written a novel now. You've done, uh, you've worked in theater. You've uh, written and directed a film uh, with Bob. And then now you've written a novel. Uh, talk about that process compared to the other two uh, pursuits and like what prompted you to, to write this. Because, you know, it's a, it's a very funny book. There's a lot of uh, satire, as I mentioned earlier. And underlying, uh, I think, most comic writing and especially satire, there's always like that anger. Um, and it's a righteous anger. But like, you know, you, you clearly must have been uh, dealing with these uh, particular frustrations for a long time and then finally found a way to alchemize it into a book. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I was really kind of frustrated working um, these various uh, day jobs and wanted to do something with that. And, uh, at the same time stuff, I mean, I was, I was, I had a really good run in Hollywood in terms of selling uh, TV pitches and, uh, writing pilots. And then, uh, after the writer's strike in 07, 08, uh, I sold one other thing and then I kind of was high and dry. And, uh, I was just frustrated by the whole business cause I had s sold a, a bunch of these things. And I had also, a couple of screenplays out there that got pretty close to getting produced, you know, I did the usual thing of taking all these meetings and so on and so forth and nothing was happening. And it's just really frustrating when you're, uh, you know, an artist and I like to make things. Um, and here you're just making these blueprints for things that never become the things themselves. Right. And, and, and it just became like, I just needed to write something that I could just call my own and just not, give a shit what anyone thought about it, you know, and, here, and, um, and then make it a thing you know? <laughs> and, and make it a thing. And, and so I had this idea about this kind of protagonist who was a sort of embodiment of toxic hipster capitalism or something like that. And, uh, and, and his little journey and his nervous breakdown and so on, it just sort of all came to me at once. And I said, I don't want to write it. It's a book. And I just started writing it and it was so much fun. It was, it was, a little bit similar to when I first wrote a play. I was going to say, you didn't tell me you didn't write the first draft in a night or I'm going to like jump out my window. 
Well, pretty close. I mean, I wrote the first draft in like three months. Okay. Well, that's still quick. Uh, um, it was really, really fast. But then I, I worked on it for a couple of years after that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was really a joy because it, it was, there was a lot of anger in it and righteous anger. And I just really kind of, I just kind of had fun with it. And I, I had never done it before and, and was surprised at, uh, at how much fun it was. And I sort of went through my books and I, and I pulled different books off the shelves that I thought, uh, you know, I really liked the sort of attitude or the DNA of that book. And I was like, I got to put a little of Newt Hampson hunger in this, you know, I, I got to put, uh, what other books did I, was I pulling off the shelves? I was like a lot of sort of like political theory and stuff like that. So, so that to give this guy a sort of, uh, veneer of fake, uh, progressivism or something. Um, so yeah, it was really, uh, it was a really fun experience. Well, uh, I, I congratulate you on it. It's, I mean, you've done Thank like you. a lot, lot of interesting things and, uh, and pretty much every, I mean, pretty much every way that a writer can write, it sounds like, I mean, what, what, what's left for you? Like, you know, like, uh, I guess like documentary, maybe I guess television, you haven't done your own television show yet. So maybe that'll be on the horizon. I'm trying to do it right now. Oh, you are. Well, I have a, I have a project that's out there that, uh, uh, we're trying to sell right now. Right. I can't talk about it. It's extremely top secret. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, <laughs> I wish you luck on it. And I thank, thank you. For, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed it. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Love your show. Okay, you guys. There you go. That is Peter Matei. Go get his novel. It's called The Deep What's This. It's available now in paperback from other press uh, in the United States and in the UK from The Friday Project. You can find Peter online at uh, the Facebook, I believe. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. Uh, it, the app itself is free. It's a good deal. So otherwise, uh, you know, I'm going to keep working on this script and on other stuff, you know, writing-wise. And, I, you know, I think I just have a very specific sense of humor. That's what I'm sort of coming to. Not that I'm totally alone or that I have, you know, but I think it's specific. Like, you know how uh, people laugh when the comedian slips on the banana peel? You know that whole trope? Uh, I think I laugh when the comedian slips on the banana peel in the midst of a sobbing fit shortly after receiving a grim diagnosis. Please remember that Christopher Marlowe died at age 29 and that when Anne Frank's father attempted to get her diary published, the first two publishers to look at it turned it down. That is it for now. Thanks for listening, you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Thanks to Peter Matei. Thanks to uh, Other Press and the Friday Project. And, uh, you know, thank you for uh, laughing at my jokes. Assuming that you did laugh. And assuming that I did actually tell a joke. Did you laugh? Is it enjoyable to bear witness to my suffering? (laughs) 